Startup exits are the most sought after events in Silicon Valley, but very few people get to experience them. Welcome to the Startup Exits podcast, where we chat with founders that started, ran, and sold a tech company to learn about how it all went down. This podcast is brought to you by Startup Soft. Hi, everybody. This is your host, Andrew Vasilik, and you're listening to Startup Exits, where we chat with founders that started, ran, and sold a tech company to learn about how it all went down. And today I'm joined by Janelle Benjamin, who started a company called Superdata. Good morning, Janelle. Good morning. Thank you for having me. Superdata is a market intelligence company uh, for the digital gaming industry. You started in 2010, grew the company to millions in revenue and dozens of employees. Uh, it became a market leader uh, in your space and eventually was acquired by Nielsen eight years later. Uh, for those that are not in the industry, such as myself, what exactly is market intelligence? Um, I guess you could, you know, market research, um, anything dealing with data around a certain industry, and obviously we're focused on digital gaming. We did things like a a lot of like key performance indicators, meaning you're going to launch a game, what type of revenue per player should you be expecting, what type of conversion rates per player should you be expecting, and also sort of what's the industry benchmark. And is a company coming in above that or below that? How do you get this sort of info? Like you you, you guys started in 2010. Mm -hmm. Uh, At that time, if I'm not mistaken, the game industry was very much offline. So how do you really get this this sort of information? So we started with um, doing a barter system with payment service providers who would give us anonymized digital gaming data. Um, It's obviously very different from retail where you're, coverage is really concentrated and people are buying at the time we're buying discs from you know four or five outlets so it's incredibly easy to get to 80 to 90 percent market coverage with that data digital was a whole different beast and so it was really wherever we could get you know any scrap of data we would and we did obviously a lot of modeling and then uh, surveys on the back end and kind of fill in the gaps and then as things grew, we were able to get more data from publishers. Mm-hmm. And what, what was really the world like back in 2010 uh, in the gaming industry? If, if this, if what sort of analytics or what sort of data were companies used to getting at that time? Uh, that's what I, I would imagine probably very different now. So they were re- mo- used to getting the retail level like scan data from NPD and I believe some from Nielsen. Um, but really npd was the leader of giving you know and it could tell you down to units sold where what store etc so that's they were used to getting a you know deep coverage um but you know there was a very different uh, industry at the time you had a few market leaders and everybody was going into stores to to buy discs um i don't know if you I don't know if you game at all, but it was the days of like lining up at GameStop the night before Mm -hmm. Grand Theft Auto came out or something like that, which is completely over. Um, I mean, lining up outside of GameStop obviously is over. Um, So it was a different world. And we definitely had to do a lot of convincing of telling people this is going to end very soon. This is going to go the way of music where digital distribution will, you know, reign supreme. So at that time, uh, when, when you guys were getting started, the information that 
all these big big gaming uh, publishing companies were having uh, was it mostly units sold in, in which stores like did, did, did they have any sort of information about uh, how often people were playing their games for how long what they were doing in the game or was it mostly just very kind of high level this is the number of units sold in these stores at that time right so the difference with a physical disc that doesn't have an you know you're not actually connected to anything that can sort of say how long you've played how long you've played what items you're using etc which is totally different for digital so they're obviously getting units sold and then all of that um all of those play metrics were much more done with, through surveys mm-hmm. so is, is that something uh do you come from this industry is that something that was pretty obvious to you that the uh, gaming was going to be digitalized. Uh, there's going to be a big opportunity in analytics, and it makes sense to start a company. Or how how did you go about starting this company, and what um, what was the thought process behind? You know, this this might be a good idea to work on. So it was actually my husband's idea, who um, got his PhD from Columbia um, in video games. I guess studying the video game industry, and he, you know, he was graduating. And he had actually gone on a couple of interviews and he came home and I said, well, you know, what, what, jo- you know, he, what job looks interesting? What are you most, in- like, what looks the best, you know, for you to pursue? And he said, honestly, I would love to pursue this idea that I have that gaming is going to go digital. And at the time, you know, obviously he was a student and I was sort of like, an, you know, entry level, working entry level at a startup. And you know, we had, two dimes to rub together. So I told him this is probably the best time to start it before we get used to nice things. So that's how we got our start. Was there anything that you guys were, I guess, what was the competitive landscape at that time? Was there, what, what was it that you guys wanted to do different? So the competitive landscape was at, at when we first, first started was really battling the retail data and convincing people that digital data was important. So previously, it was 90% of um, game sales was through retail and 10% was digital. So all companies did was they got their numbers from NPD, they had their 90%, and they could just kind of back of the envelope, figure out what digital was because it was, you know, maybe just getting into double digits. Um, Then... As things started to move more digital, then we saw a couple companies coming out with their own sort of digital um, metrics, but most of them did it via survey rather than uh, transaction level data. Mm-hmm. And, and your, your guys' approach was more on the transaction level? Yes, we, th- we, yeah, we wanted to have something that was, um, you know, a, a little more granular than we felt you could get from surveys in, ter- in terms of spending. Right. So uh, now I would imagine a, you know, a good chunk of sales uh, is digital. So the, the situation has flipped from um, 10 years ago when you guys got started. Uh, yep. are, we, are we talking like what sort of how what sort of detail can you expect from market analysis in the gaming industry now? Is this equivalent to what you can expect with websites and apps like Google Analytics level? Yes. Kind of detail. Yes. Because you're connect, you know, you're you're connected to that server. I mean, and, and it's exactly like you said, when you're going on a website, they know how long you stayed on there, 
What did you click on? Did you abandon the basket? What was in the basket, et cetera? That's exactly what you can have with gaming now. And again, to your what you said, it's completely the reverse now of the ma- large, overwhelming majority is digital, and then there's a small piece that's retail now. Mm-hmm. And how different is that for like mobile games versus console games? Uh, do you still get the same uh, level of detail with console games, or um, or is it is it different? So console games now are actually digital console. So, so you know, if you're going, you know, to play Call of Duty or something like that, you're connect you're connected to the internet via your console. So it's essentially very similar. Right. Okay, so you, you can expect the same kind of info that you will get from an app, uh, a gaming app that's on your phone uh, that you would from whatever, a new Xbox. Um, yes. You, you mentioned you started the company with your husband, and I read somewhere that for the first two years or for the first little while, uh, you guys did not really draw any salary, which is you know a very typical story for a startup. Um, how did the family survive? I mean, if there's two, uh, if, if both of you are working on a startup that's, that's in, in the early stages, how was how that? How, how does that kind of financial dynamic work out in the, in the early days of a startup? I mean, I think that, so we drew only exactly what we needed to pay our bills, which were extremely pared down. I think we mostly had, you know, our main expense was like rent and food. Mm-hmm. And that was it. So it was, it was we de- definitely drew something, but it was incredibly minimal. But like I said, at the time, Yos had just was, had been a student for, you know, four years. I was in entry level. We were extremely used to living on a shoestring budget. So that wasn't a big change for us. Mm -hmm. And I I guess the company was pretty scrappy as well, which, which is a good thing. I mean, a lot of people, they go out and they raise these huge rounds and they associate that with success, but that's, that's not always the case. Uh, you guys bootstrapped for quite a while. Was that a yeah. intentional decision to bootstrap or you guys did not uh, try to raise money or maybe, you know, this was a company that you didn't feel like was, uh, was venture scalable uh, or was this more kind of an in- intentional thing where you wanted to have control, you wanted to, uh, to, to, to run the company on your own, at your own pace rather than to raise VC money? So we had a real, a small, like friends and uh, I guess we should say family because it was family round. Right. And um, beyond that, I mean, we were really fortunate to to be able to, you know, sustain the company on the sales that we had. Mm-hmm. And it was only at the end, you know, in late 2017, did we think, oh, this is getting a little bigger. And on it, you have to, something to note is that, I don't think we had, we didn't know how big it would get. We didn't know what it would do. <laughs> kind of just like, let's see what happens. <laughs> and then I think once 2017 hit, we we're like, oh my God, this is a real business. So we should get some money. <laughs> so that's only, that's the only time we started thinking about raising VC um, money. Was there anything about 2017? What, what, what happened in 2017 that, um, that changed? We kind of hit, we kind of hit that tipping point where, you know, it's, it's, you know, it was great. We could absolutely run on what we were making, but in, we wanted, you know, to take advantage of building new products. And then you reach a certain point in terms of like team size where you have to increase like your admin load. Mm-hmm. So you really need, you know, you need it. You suddenly need an office manager. Whereas before, you know, if you're 10, 12 people, you're fine. But when you start to be 30 people, 
you need help. And so that admin load started going up and we realized that we would be slowing our growth and leaving money on the table if we didn't put some more fuel in the tank. Mm-hmm. So you, you raised in, I guess, 2016, 17, which is shortly before the, the acquisition uh, by Nielsen in 2018. How did you first get in contact with Nielsen? We had been in contact with Nielsen since inception. Um, they were interested in what we were doing since the beginning. And, you know, they, Nielsen does a ton of acquisitions a year and they are, do a really good job of keeping track of what's going on. They do, um, they do uh, client surveys and they really figure out what services their clients are using and what's kind of up and coming. And they saw us, kind of, you know, creeping up on their client surveys. And so they stayed in touch with us you know, at least a couple times a year. Were they the ones that reached out to you guys first or was it, was it you that made the first contact? I don't remember. Mm-hmm. I honestly, it was so long ago, I don't remember. And N- Nielsen um, was, so you guys maintained a relationship with them over time. Uh, I guess one, one of the things that pops in my head is, I mean, N- Nielsen is a, a competitor in a way. Uh, was there ever any sort of, uh, concern from your side about sharing maybe too much info or uh, about them meeting uh, with the intention of getting info rather than the intention of potentially acquiring you guys down the road or any sort of concern uh, with that regard? So previous to Superdata, I had worked at a company called um, Buzzmetrics mm-hmm. that had also been acquired by Nielsen. And the co-founders of Buzzmetrics were on our board and were said, you know, were, were great sources of information of like, who can you trust, you know, where to hold back information, where to be fine with giving information. So we had really good advisors in terms of that, but we felt that they operated above board and, you know, always felt pretty comfortable sharing stuff. Mm-hmm. And how often did you guys stay in touch? Was this like a reg- regular thing or on an as needed basis sort of? So I was prior to 2017, we were probably in touch twice a year. And then in 2017, we noticed that they, you know, reached out more frequently. Um, and then I, that's why we weren't super surprised with the offer in 2018, because, you know, there was a while we we're like, they're calling us a lot. Hmm. So. <laughs> and w- w- when you first, I guess, and then not, not before 2017, but like 20, early 2010s, did you um, did you anticipate that this was going to be a, an, an M&A type conversation or was it more uh, like, was, was it something that you had in the back of your head that these guys could acquire us uh, or, uh, or was it more like, you know, just keep your options open kind of thing? I guess a, a bit of both. We definitely considered it. You know, we, we had contacts at every major, you know, market intelligence company who covered gaming, who covered digital media. And Culture-wise, we felt that we just the people who we spoke to there, we just got along with the best. Mm-hmm. So we definitely considered it, but you know, we didn't know if it would be a partnership, and they, you know, just kind of, they would be like a sell-through channel or what it would be. You know, we really kept. It's easy to, especially in the early days when there's a lot of pain and rejection, <laughs> to kind of, you know, get lost in a fantasy. And we were very careful to really stay focused on like, we just, you know, look, if we just build great products and a great team, we're going to be okay no matter what. Did you talk with anybody else besides Nielsen? 
We did. Nielsen was actually our third offer. Mm-hmm. So I would imagine that that probably helped quite a bit when you guys were in the uh, in the negotiation stages. So you left a few months after the acquisition. Uh, how come you didn't stick around? I left about a year after. Uh, you know, I think that one of the things that my mentor, who was our our chairman and um, it was incredibly helpful about was just like, look, some people can transition to working at a company and some people can't. Mm-hmm. And it can be very difficult to watch your like baby be, you know, people making decisions about it and maybe you don't agree with it or not. And so, you know, and I think Nielsen's because they do so many acquisitions, they know that also that they know like either you need to move on within the company to something else or you integrate tra- and help things transition and then thank you very much. Mm-hmm. So we were very open about it and um, very upfront about where I felt like I would where I felt like I would be good at. And I honestly felt like I had taken super data as far as I could take it. So that's, um, I guess that's, that's, a, that's a thing that for some people, I mean, an acquisition could be a pretty bittersweet moment in some ways, because on one mm-hmm. hand, you've built a successful company, you had a, you know, a successful outcome, which very few people get to have. But on the other hand, like, like you put it, I mean, it's your baby, right? That you worked on for, oh, yeah. for a decade and you're passing it on to somebody else that could make decisions and do things with it that you don't necessarily agree. Um, you, so you started, uh, bef- you, you started in the gaming industry before gaming really uh, became digitalized, right? So you you were a step ahead in some ways, uh, before in in a pretty big, I would say, paradigm shift in gaming. Where do you see gaming uh, and or data analytics heading in the future? Is there any sort of paradigm shifts that you see that that, that could be pretty big that could disrupt the industry, such as the move from offline to to di- digital that you guys went through? I don't know if it's going to be as big a shift as you know things moving to digital. I, I think. All the things that are coming next are partially because of that shift to digital. You know, when you're talking about esports, um, and when you're talking about you know games as sort of like more of a playable media, and treating it more like a media outlet than um, you know like a like a what we just consider like a flat interactive game. So I think you know everything that comes next came out of the shift to digital. One of the things that uh, you can't escape when you talk about data is privacy, mm-hmm. and uh, especially in the recent years, it's you know it's been a, become a pretty, uh, pretty important thing to talk about, and I think it's going to become even, um, even more important as we go on. Right. Uh, when it comes to apps and websites, I you know there's all sorts of disclaimers and all sorts of things happening, uh, but when it comes to games, I don't feel like there's a whole lot of conversation. Uh, regarding privacy, what are your thoughts about privacy uh, and data collection within the gaming industry in general? I think you know, I think it can do fine with opt-in, really, because I just you know it's. I don't think you're scraping things that are intensely personal, mm-hmm. and I think that they're just you know I think as long as it's not any sort of what is what's that term called like personal um personal identify identifiers yeah things like that like making sure things are anonymized and i you know so much of it is around like are there bugs in the game like we want to make sure people can actually finish this level 
um, you know, are things priced too high? So a lot of it is, is about just calibrating the game. You know, when you have a digital game, it's, it's kind of living and breathing. It's constantly changing. It's dynamic, especially if you have people who can play on teams and, um, you know, can do campaigns and stuff together. You know, it's an important backend feedback of just like, are things operating properly? And then again, when you have you know people interacting online, there's got to be some oversight to that. Mm-hmm. So I think gaming isn't that super personal piece of where data collection makes me uncomfortable. Does that change when we talk about like free free to play games or free games in general, where the business model is not you know pay us for this game or pay us for whatever tokens and coins within the game, but rather you know you're served ads and presumably. Um, you know, your data is being shared for the purpose of um, data analytics. Does that does that change really when, when we talk about free free games, or is that more or less still apply? I think a, a little bit, just because most of those free games your people are playing is on a platform where you're already sharing. So if you're downloading a free game from the Apple App Store, I mean, they already know everything there is to know. What do you mean by that? Like, so, you know, like Apple already knows who you are, where you live, what you do, everything. So, so it's a lot of those free games are coming off of that, are coming off of a platform that already has that information. Mm-hmm. So I don't think it's, it's that different. I think where it can get really sticky is like kids, mm-hmm. you know, like kids games and are you collecting data about kids and are you taking snapshots of the other apps that kids have opened and that's where it gets like okay okay we got to figure this out and and figure out what line that we don't want to cross so we're now i guess two years after the acquisition a year or so since you left yeah uh what do you have going on now right now just summering um (laughs) i was highly burnt out after super data and um, keep in mind that we raised around at the end of 2017 and then got an offer at the beginning of 2018. So I had back-to-back due diligence, which was a nightmare. Um, I'm also like a, a mom. And so I've just, I've just like this past year has just been catching up on sleep. So I think I'll, I don't know, start to get into something in the next couple of months or so. I think that's a well-deserved break after yeah, thank you know, you. T- t- 10 years within the company. I, I heard you mention that in an interview that you, you feel like you have another startup in you. Uh, would you want to stick to the same industry, gaming, market analytics, or would you, would you want to do something else this time? I would definitely want to do something around data. Mm-hmm. I just love data. And um, yeah, I love, I, lo- I love the people who are into data. It's sort of this, you know, kind of number nerdy types so i can definitely relate to them uh where can people find you if they want to follow you twitter linkedin where's, where's the best place for people to to check out what you have going on in your life i admittedly don't use social media very much i'm on linkedin occasionally um so i don't know I, again i've absolutely been laying low the past year i guess the best thing to do is people can just watch the news when when you start a new company <laughs> i guess so right <laughs> Awesome. Well, thanks we'll a lot for coming. Happens. Thanks a lot for coming on the show, Janelle. It's a pleasure to have you on. Thank you, Andrew. Talk to you soon. Bye. Thanks for listening. 
If you enjoyed this episode, subscribe and share it with your friends. Also tag a founder you'd like to see on the show. This podcast is brought to you by Startup Soft. To learn more, visit startupsoft.org.